It's time again for the one show that takes a look at business from a different perspective. The Coaching Perspective with Master Certified Business Coach, Doug Gefeller. Hey, Doug. Hey, Paul. Glad to be with you here in studio at our new time, 3 o'clock on Thursday. Well, look, welcome to today's episode of the Coaching Perspective Radio Show. I'm your host, Doug Gefeller, and our guest for today is Dave Huxtable, and we're going to be talking about delighting in differences and celebrating similarity. Now, that's uh, that's a challenge. Uh, Dave has recently moved to Southern California after a career in cultural relations, working in 11 countries on four continents and picking up 10 languages on the way. Wow. We will only be talking in one today, Dave, because that's all I can. Well, I can't say master. It's all I know. <laughs> that's good. Okay. And we're going to be talking about Dave's coaching practice. Discuss how an understanding of the differences and similarities between people leads to success in our our globalized world. So that's our topic for today. And I'm a master certified coach by the International Coach Federation, and I've been coaching business leaders and their teams for 21 years, helping them to clarify their objectives and reach their goals. And if you'd like to know more about my coaching services, just go to the website, thecoachingperspective.com. So much for the commercial. Now let's get into the fun stuff. Welcome to the Coaching Perspective Radio Show, Dave. Thank you so much, Doug. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. You and I have talked at uh, uh, the ICF Orange County Chapter Meeting. and uh, We have. You mentioned, hey, you'd like to be on someday, but uh, you thought I only wanted to talk to people who'd been coaching for 100,000 years. Yep. <laughs> That's not the case. <laughs> not the case at all. Excellent. It's great to be here. Well, look, give us a little bit about your personal background. You know, you're, you've not been here very long. I'm always interested in what brings somebody to the U.S. What, what brave pioneer spirit is it that makes you want to cross the ocean there and start all over again? Well, as, it, as, as you said, I've lived in 11 countries. I think this is actually the 11th. Okay. Um, I'm originally from the U.K., but my entire working life has, be, has involved traveling. So normally I would be in a given country for three or four years and then move on. Uh, always knew that eventually I would want to be somewhere for a bit longer than that. <laughs> um, and because my daughter studied here okay, um, and then met a local and, and got married, and she now has a daughter of her own, this uh, was the ideal spot to choose. So grandpa's got to come live Indeed. close. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and having moved around a lot, it's nice to settle somewhere where there's family close by. What did you do that you would move countries every three or four years? So I worked for an organization called the British Council, uh, which works to build understanding uh, between people from different parts of the world. Um, and so I would be... I would be sent on a posting to, to a country, and in different places I did different jobs. So I, I, I moved up the, the management ladder, and my final job before I moved here was as a director of the Beijing office. Wow. Um, so I was, I was in China for seven years. I was well, two per... For seven years? A three and a four. And what um, languages did you learn there? Um, so interestingly, I'd, Chinese was about the third language I learned. Uh, so that was that was something I did at university, and I lived in China in the mid '80s, um, and then went around and, and learnt other languages, lived in other places. So it was really interesting to go back after 20 years, um, 
my brain was saying, oh, you need this stuff again. So you kind of start downloading it. Um, and so so while there, I was speaking Mandarin and, okay. and English. All right. All right. And in China, is it predominantly one language or is it? Uh, interesting question. There are hundreds of different dialects. Okay. Uh, but the standard language is, is Mandarin Chinese. Okay. And so that's what people learn at school. So you'll kind of find that people from their 40s down will all completely and absolutely master Mandarin, but may speak other languages at home. Uh, older people than that will speak Mandarin with, a, with an accent from, from their original language. Interesting. Interesting. And, and some, some kind of struggle a bit. Do you enjoy learning new languages? Absolutely love it. It's been a passion uh, for my entire life. Wow. It's, it, is, it is something that is beyond my capabilities. I have tried and tried and failed at it. I just don't hear the differences in the sounds. And uh, I'm extremely jealous of people who've got that, uh, that skill set. That's, that's yeah, that's something we might talk about later because I think that's uh, some, some, sometimes people get that impression of themselves that this is something that's impossible for them. But uh, I think it's not necessarily the case. Now, if you're in the audience, what you've just heard is I'm being coached here. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Dave. Very good. Well, look, um, how did you get into coaching and when? Ah, um, so towards the end of my time in China, um, the, my wife was actually the training and development manager uh, in, the, in the Beijing office. Okay. And she was looking at training and development in a sense of looking at what the organization needed rather than as kind of perks for, for the top managers. And she was looking at, at coaching and decided that coaching should be on a, on a by-need basis rather than a by-status basis. Ah. So um, she contacted a local agency that provided coaches and those people who were identified as as needing coaching, and I was one of those, um, got coaches. So this is probably my my first introduction to the to the field of coaching. Ah, on the other side of the table. On the other side of the table, I had a wonderful coach called Yene, who's from Ethiopia. So there was a, a Brit and an Ethiopian working together in China. <laughs> And we started off, we were talking about, you know, what, what, what do I want to achieve? And I was saying, well, I could have a better relationship with my boss, etc. Second, second session, she said, oh, Dave, what do you really want? So I said, well, I've, I kind of want to move to California, um, but I don't know what I'm going to do when I get there. So that was then what we started working on. And, and that was how I kind of understood the power of coaching. Okay. And then thought, so you see, I, I started researching more about it. Um, found out that there was a, a coaching course that I could do at a distance and thought, yeah, this is something that I would really enjoy doing. Um, it involves listening. I've always been a good listener. Um, it involves people, and I've, I've always been a, a people person. Okay. So it seemed to, it seemed to be an ideal uh, fit. Any surprises in, in the training uh, that you went through? Did it sort of come to you naturally, or were there some things that uh, kind of shook your assumptions you had going in? I think, I mean, I think one of the things that, that uh, people struggle with and that I knew about in advance was that kind of natural tendency for people to give it, give each other advice. Oh, yes. 
Um, and so they're learning how not to do that because there are subtle ways of doing it, aren't there? So you might know, okay, my role is to listen and to guide and to facilitate, but I'm not supposed to be steering you in any particular direction. So you learn not to say, if I were you, I would do X. Right. But the tougher thing is to not say, so, have you ever thought of trying X? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's totally different, right? <laughs> yeah, so that was, that was, that was probably the, the tough thing to, one of the tougher things to learn. And would you say that uh, that was something you learned and you no longer have to think about that? Or is it something you still find yourself guarding against? I think you always have to guard against it. Oh, you reassured yeah. me. Thank you very much, because I've been doing this a long time, and yeah. I am still guarding against it. <laughs> and also, I think one of the things that I'm really still grappling with at the moment um, is that sense of uh, giving up control. The um, a degree of self-monitoring whereby you're kind of thinking, oh, what am I going to ask next? Yeah. And actually kind of relaxing into the process, trusting the process, and not feeling that you should be steering the conversation towards any towards a particular goal or a, a goal of yours rather than of the client's. Right, right. Um, right. And that, that's, that's the kind of learning challenge at the moment. So how long was your, your training program? I've been doing it for three years. I'm still, I'm okay. still in, in that program. All right. And when did you start with clients? Uh, when I moved here, so that was a year ago. Okay, so you didn't start in China. I had some peer clients in China, and also, um, so peer clients in in terms of other people who were training to be coaches. Sure. But also colleagues uh, that I was, so I was still doing my, my day job. Okay. Um, and of course, as you learn a new skill, you start to think of applications for it. So, you know, it conversations you have with people in bars can even turn into a coaching conversation because people will say yeah i'm kind of worried about x um and the kinds of questions that you ask because that's something you're thinking about yep. tend to be more coachy questions than every once in a while i will be having a conversation with my wife and she will stop and she'll look at me and she'll go <laughs> you're coaching me now aren't you <laughs> You know, as if that's something sneaky. <laughs> no, that's something you should pretty much expect. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. And so you've been here a year. Mm -hmm. And how are you finding it here in the States? Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Now, you've been here before. This isn't your first time in the Yeah, States. so I think, I mean, my daughter graduated in maybe about 2005. Um, so I've been coming here since 2003, more or less regularly. Uh, before China, we lived in Mexico, so that was easy. We could come up as often as we wanted, and she would she would come and visit us oh, there. Oh, that was as well. not convenient. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you went from Mexico to Irvine, Mexico to Guangzhou to Beijing to Irvine. What were your expectations for starting a coaching practice from scratch here in the states? Now, I think I fell into the trap of thinking it was going to be really easy. That it would be, you know, put out a few ads on social media. Um, maybe a few blog posts, and then the the clients would start pouring in. Hasn't worked that way. Hasn't worked quite like that, no. So we talked before we came on the air. So uh, about the niche, do you feel you need to have a niche, or do you have you identified a niche that you want to focus on? I think. I mean, what we were saying about coaching not being about 
being the expert who who guides people in a certain direction kind of means that you don't need expertise in a particular area you don't need to just focus in a particular area but um, if you're going to be listening to, to people talking about stuff um, it's nice that they're talking about things that you're interested in yes so you know the kinds of conversations that you want to have and things that I've always been interested in are languages difference so that the the wonderful diversity that there is in 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 the world that um that the the, the fact that i mean I've, I've always just had this passion about hearing about people from other places meeting people with other experiences with other points of view um and so those are the kinds of conversations that i'm interested in having okay uh so diversity intercultural communication um diversity in in terms of group diversity and also personal diversity you know when i think of a, a niche this is just my own way of looking at it, i think of the niche as more identifying who i want to work uh-huh. with rather than than what i want to work on yeah. with them because uh-huh. like you say i don't need to be an expert mm-hmm. it, it should be something that doesn't make me uncomfortable or or that uh, i'm in it should be something i'm interested in but probably the niche that i typically identify is what are what is the client makeup that i'm the most comfortable mm-hmm. with what would you how would you respond to that people who are wanting to develop their their sense of diversity okay. so either um people who themselves are experiencing discrimination for example um because if you're in that situation, work. You need to have the confidence that the the coach is not going to tell you that that's not the case. So you know, if you're, um, for example, a black woman who is experiencing discrimination, right? The last thing she wants to be told is, no, surely they didn't mean it like that. Are you sure that's what they said? <laughs> so that's 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 one. Mm-hmm. kind of client um, secondly people who want their to want to shine as delighting in diversity so companies entrepreneurs who want to be known as being welcoming and inclusive and benefiting from the from the huge benefits that that diversity can bring to a business wonderful and do you think that it automatically is going to lend your client list to more corporations than individuals or not necessarily i think not necessarily okay. so uh given those interests you know, it could be it could be people who have recently moved to the u.s uh even more recently than me <laughs> um people who are about to leave and go and embark on an adventure in well, another there culture. you go yeah get ready yeah. yeah you know one question that we've frequently asked our guests frequently i would say we've asked every guest we've ever had the mm-hmm. show is what their guiding principle is what what is it that is their true north that is the value that they hold on to no matter what something that that makes me think of is an experience i had when i lived in china in the 1980s um so china in the 1980s was a very very different place to how it is now and to everywhere else in the world back then and i i think this was i'd probably lived there for about a year 
and I was cycling along the road and it's a it's a narrow road with these wooden buildings with the with the pointy up eaves okay. and there's absolutely sea of cyclists most people still wearing mouse suits at that point and I stopped and I had a sudden realization that there I was in this to me very very exotic setting but that it seemed totally normal but <laughs> I'd been there long enough that this exoticness was my my day-to-day normality and I think that kind of sums up what I what I think about difference and similarity that that kind of rejoicing in the difference of it but actually then realizing that I was at home there and that for me was very important so Dave how do we start this conversation where do you want to go with this ah an interesting question you know you had said let me just when we talked before you you had given me some tips you said you know human beings like to categorize each other into groups mm-hmm. and then assume that everyone in the group is similar to each other but different from members of other groups yeah uh and and then you went on to give some examples mm-hmm. of that expand on that a little bit what where what does that mean and where are you going with it one of the things I've been noticing recently is there's a lot of talk about millennials. Yes. Uh, and you, there, there are, you can watch talks on how to manage millennials or, you know, the challenge of millennials. What do millennials really want? And for me, that's one of those examples of this kind of desire that human beings have to categorize and then make generalizations. So... In the 19th century, people went around collecting butterflies and putting them together and and, and classifying them and then making predictions about their behaviours. And that kind of thing then kind of becomes real. So instead of um, working with Betty, you're working with a millennial. Instead of you being Doug, you're being your generation and you have expectations about each other. And the expectations are that whatever that group is, whether it's millennials or Sagittarians or or Chinese people or tall people, um, that you kind of assume that they're all very, very similar to each other and also that they're all very, very different from you. Whereas the reality can be that within the group, there's as much difference as there is between the group and you and that actually there's lots of stuff that you have in common with people in that other group. But we tend not to see that so much or talk about that so much. But but don't we tend to, I mean, oh, let me try to justify it. We tend to <laughs> want to group people yeah. with a label mm-hmm. because we don't know them yet, and maybe that will make it easier to connect with them. So if I want to work with millennials and I'm going to assume that they have a short attention span and that they want to learn new things and they're high technology adapters, uh, then maybe that's the way I would sort of design a training program or an educational program to work with them until I got to know them individually. Now, isn't, isn't that grouping, while it may not be right, isn't it an, uh, an aid to working with groups? It is, but not if you only focus on the differences between you and them. Okay, so it's it's a, a way of opening the door, but yeah. then then drop it and start mm-hmm. to evaluate and uh, sort of validate yeah. whether those assumptions are right or not. Or even, even right at that initial stage, 
where you're saying, okay, what, what do I know about this group of people? I know what were the things you said that they have a short attention span. I, I was just grabbing for okay. things. But, but yeah, high technology. High technology. And, and there was like a, to like to learn new things. They like to learn new things. Okay. Do you like to learn new things? I do. Yeah. Yes. So there we go. So there you've got something in common between you and and these these people. Okay. And I think if you're designing a training program, for example, set basing it on that communality is going to be more successful than just basing it on the differences. Okay, but I've I've that commonality is as a result of my labeling them millennials and what I've read in the paper and books saying that they they are interested in learning new things. Mm-hmm. It's not based on my observation of this millennial. Absolutely. But then <laughs> but then as you get to know them, as I get to know you them. find more commonality if you're looking for it. Okay. So so you're not so much saying that we're making a mistake by uh, making some assumptions about the group. What I hear you saying is that we should look for things that we are alike in mm-hmm. rather than focus on the differences. Yeah, the, the, I think to get the whole picture, you have to look at the differences and the similarities. Any examples about how that worked for you in... Because I'm sure that it's almost easier to see where you're dealing with people of a different nationality mm-hmm. in a different culture than, you know, I mean, we could use the producer here. I mean, radio announcers are weird, really <laughs> weird. But, you know, there's not that uh-huh. many of them. So, But what you got an example of... Yeah, so, for example, in China, everyone knows, for example... That if if you, if you say what's a, what's a trait of Chinese culture, lots of people will say it's really important not to cause people to lose face. Yeah. Face is incredibly important. You have to you have to give people face. You have to make people make sure that people don't lose face. And that's kind of taken as if that's different from anyone else. But actually, once you start to think about what face is about. It's about the fact that people don't like to be publicly humiliated. And then you think, well, actually, do I like to be publicly humiliated? <laughs> Not really. So that that thing that you used to think of was a difference becomes something that you have in common. Interesting. Uh, my wife is not Chinese, but on that assumption, she could be because she hates to lose face. Mm-hmm. Which means that uh, when we come back from the party, I am going to hear a whole lot about why I made fun of her in the jokes that I told. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, and I think, I mean, hu- humor's an interesting one. Yeah. Because people comment a lot about the British sense of humor and it being odd. Oh, they do have one, huh? Indeed. <laughs> but I actually found one of, the, one of those things that uh, was a, a kind of really comforting discovery when I first lived in China or is that the Chinese sense of humor is very similar to the British one. That you, I could crack jokes in China, and Chinese people would find them funny. Huh. And that's not always the case in America. That uh, British humor in America can often just completely miss the mark. Uh, you know, I the only experience I've had with that is watching some of the television shows, mm-hmm. from the British television shows which just don't hit me as funny Indeed. as uh, they are supposed to. Yeah. You know? So 
Okay, so what you're suggesting there is that we look for the similarity, mm-hmm. that that is the first step in eliminating sort of these prejudice and accepting uh, truly diverse backgrounds. Yeah, and then cel- celebrating the difference, but also kind of enjoying the similarity and enjoying finding the similarities and pointing them out to people. What What did you find were the similarities that you didn't expect when you came to the U.S.? To, to live full-time uh-huh. and work. Because, yeah. I mean, visiting as a tourist is different than sure. living here, I assume. Uh, that is a very interesting question. And I think you may have caught me not practicing what I preach. <laughs> Mainly because, I think, the expectation between the UK and the US is the other way around. That you expect it to be more similar than it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the... Uh, I think I was probably more. I've been more aware of of differences that I've discovered, okay. rather than rather than similarities, um, and have been wary of those, such as. I think because it works both ways. Because we share a common language, yes, and uh, to a large extent a common culture, we kind of assume that we're more similar to each other than we are, and so I think. Um, less so now, but in the beginning, I was conscious of being very wary of offending people because there are different codes of politeness, for example. Um, and I think people on the whole tend to be more forgiving of people who are very different. So yes. Yeah, they don't know any no. better. It's yeah, their way. So, you know, it's not I, personal. Mm-hmm, yeah. If I looked very different, mm-hmm. um, had uh, had an accent that made people think that I that English wasn't my first language right. and didn't say please thank you sorry excuse me in exactly the same circumstances as Americans would people would think oh well he's not from here whereas as a Brit I have been conscious of um, people looking a little bit uncomfortable or looking a bit askance at you not following those social norms because they kind of expect you to be like everyone else so we're focusing, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here focusing on what should be the similarities, and they aren't. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> and they aren't. I mean, stuff, stuff that I've learned, for example, um, especially kind of moving here from China, people's personal space in the U.S. is absolutely huge. So walking through a supermarket, which was kind of with aisles that are like 10 times as wide as, as a Chinese supermarket, people will say, excuse me. And I'm thinking, well, they're not talking to me because I'm not in their way. Uh, but but I am, actually. They, they do think I'm in their way. Yeah. So I kind of move out the way, but don't say anything. And they'll kind of say, I said, excuse me. Oh, sorry. Oh, thank you. And so I learned that what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to move out the way and say sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and in your mind, you weren't even in the way. You weren't, you weren't even close. <laughs> no. Which, which is something that I think most of us are aware of, that from, uh, uh, let's say, the, the Asian countries, that their, uh, their space, they're, they're more willing to be crowded together mm-hmm. and not be yeah. uncomfortable, whereas, you know, if I'm in line here and somebody touches me, it's like, you know, you're trying to pick my pocket. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just totally offended. Uh, my assumption is that from my traveling in, in England, uh, uh, people are much more polite about lining up to do yes. things there than we are here. Yeah. It's sort of a free-for-all. Um, 
<laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I, th I think it depends where you're coming from. So uh, compared to other places I've lived, lining up is still pretty... Uh, people are, are pretty good at... It's important to people here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in the UK, it's a it's an absolute obsession. Um, so like you know, for three people waiting for an empty bus, they will stand in line, and will not be at all happy if someone cuts in front of them, even though you know there's it's not going to make any difference to their yeah. lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I've noticed. Uh, sometimes people get very upset when uh, they're in a line. And, a line of one, mm -hmm. and you walk up and you don't stand right behind them in line. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah, Do you're going to try and scoot you? past. <laughs> you're going to try and scoot past them. So this is these are are things that you're saying by focusing on the differences. We are in effect creating difficulties. We're creating differences rather than focusing on the similarities. Yeah, I mean, going back to that, to the example of generations, Yeah, that I think a lot of things that are said about millennials um, and a lot of things that we observe about millennials are not actually specific to that generation because they grew up with certain circumstances or with certain technology. It's just a factor of being young. And if, you, if, you're, if you're experiencing that kind of generational conflict, I think one of the things that's important to realise is Actually, they're, they're just young people. What was I like when I was that age? Okay, so I didn't stare at a phone screen all the time. I had my nose in a comic book. But <laughs> adults still said to me, hey, are you going to talk to other people? Yeah. How are you ever going to make friends if you never go out? Um, the same kinds of things. Uh, and also, I'm like in a work situation. When you first arrive in a workplace, you kind of say, why, is, why are things like this? And then the, those who've been there longer say, oh, that, that's the way it is. Yeah, but why? And that's probably a question that we asked when we were fresh out of college and in our first job. Uh, and it's actually a really good question to ask. Yeah, you know, I, it, it's kind of funny. This is, uh, uh, you see this in so many different ways. Uh, um my wife was uh, talking to her sister-in-law, and her mother was there, and they were talking about a recipe that the mother-in-law, my mother-in-law, um, makes. Mm -hmm. And and the sister-in-law had didn't have the recipe. She says, "Well, mom won't write it out." And she says, "Well, I've written it out. Well, yeah, but a pinch of this and a pinch of that, you know." <laughs> and and what it came down to is the quantity was what what filled the pot. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, but that's her pot, not somebody else's <laughs> pot, which is a different size. But, the, you know, it, it was a, is it a cultural difference? No, it was just a different way of measuring uh, that did it. Another one that I run into frequently in, in business coaching is I deal with CEOs who are close to retirement. So mm -hmm. let's, let's put that generational gap in there who frequently talk about the lack of commitment by their younger employees because they don't stay past 40 hours. Now, they're hired to work 40 hours, and they're paid for 40 hours, 
So where is the disconnect here? Well, if they really liked the company and cared, they would be here more than 40 hours because that's what I did Uh 40 years ago. I think one of the things, I mean, it's, um, again, I think it comes down to circumstances that our people were, were, was, was that CEO more committed at that time because he comes from a generation that valued that or because he was invested in the fact that he would probably work for that company for a really long time. And there was that contract between them that, you know, you put in all of the hours that it takes but we'll take care of you. You're going to be here for your entire career. We're going to give you a gold watch. Uh, we're going to make sure you've got an, a, a great pension. And so that was the contract between them. But in today's workforce, and I don't think that's necessarily because that's what this generation wants, but it's just the reality. You are not going to still be working in the same company when you're 60. See, I don't know that I would even agree that it has to do with the the commitment for how long they're there. Mm-hmm. I think it has to do with the expectations. If, if you take the older generation, when they went to work, when I went to work, the expectation was, and it was made clear to me in my first job, that you would put in the hours that were needed regardless of the 40-hour schedule. Indeed. Today, when somebody goes to work, I don't think that expectation is made clear to them. So the, now there's a rub. There's an expectation on the part of the senior manager, unspoken, unverbalized, to the younger employee. So it isn't a generational issue. It, it is a lack of communication mm-hmm. about expectations. Indeed. Yeah, so it, that they're kind of unspoken expectations. Yeah. They're expectations that uh, the manager is living to, but has not communicated to other people. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, um, you kind of expect other people to live to your rules. Sometimes we do that uh, without ever telling them what the rules are. Sure. Uh, and I, I find that driving. I mean, I've got, um, I live in Ladera Ranch where there are lots of roundabouts. Now, in the UK, we have lots of roundabouts. I think we maybe even invented roundabouts. They so drove we used, me nuts when I was over yeah. there. Yeah. So we use turn signals when we're going around roundabouts. Oh. You kind of turn that you're not, you're not coming off, and then when you come off, you turn the other. You, you put the signal on the other mm-hmm. side. And I know people don't do that here, but it really annoys me that they don't. <laughs> and so, to an extent, I do it deliberately. I'm, I'm really religious about my turn signals because I'm trying to educate the whole of Southern California about how to go around roundabouts. How's that going for you? <laughs> not too good. <laughs> But I think, you know, I'm using that as an example yeah. of, of the kind of things that people do. Like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of give you a dirty look every time you leave at five o'clock so that you will understand that I actually expect you to stay. Yeah. But that's as far as it's going to go. Well, you know, couldn't we go so far as to say that a lot of what we call culture, mm-hmm. the culture of a country, the culture of a company, really has to do with unspoken expectations. Indeed. So your example earlier about space, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's an unspoken expectation that in the Asian countries that you can stand close to each other. Yeah. 
and it's an unspoken expectation here that you're not going to touch me. <laughs> you're going to give me, you know, more space. Uh-huh. And I think the key to that is, is, is observation. So self-awareness and then observation of others. So to find out what those unwritten rules are, because we, we don't tell each other. No. Um, so to, to think, okay, what makes me uncomfortable about that situation where people are standing so close? Does that, what does that say about me? And what does it say? And, and then when I observe how those people act, I notice that they actually stand closer to each other. So maybe this, some, this is something that we do have to verbalise. Mm-hmm. That um, you know, I've noticed there's a difference. Have you noticed? And to actually kind of make it explicit, there's a there's a story about it was, it's called the Turkish Ambassador's Dance. Okay. Where uh, this is supposedly British diplomats and Turkish diplomats at a buffet. So they're they're going up to the table where the food is and they're talking to each other as they help themselves, and they all go round and round in a circle because the Turks keep taking a step closer to, to be socially correct in their culture as to how close you're supposed to stand to someone. The Brits, and it would work equally well with Americans, think, okay, this person's standing too close, and they take a step back, and they end up going round and round the table. What challenges do you expect in starting your coaching practice here in terms of cultural differences? Any? I think if, if the coaching practice is about cultural differences, then um, the more challenges, the better. Yeah. Because that's something that we that, that me and the clients experience together. I'm not sure I expect them about... Uh, I suppose it depends who the clients are. So any, any, any expectations of, of people who are like me coming in, in new... Mm-hmm. Um, those are things that we will want to discuss and, and, and explore. Let me uh, sort of uh, take a little side topic here, if mm-hmm. I can, with you, sure. since I've got you on the hot <laughs> seat here. Um, when somebody meets you, how do you describe what you do? So you're a coach, and you're coaching in cultural diversity. What, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Interestingly, and I think this might be an illustration of the of your previous question, I haven't developed a kind of elevator pitch. Um, and I think there's a cultural difference there between the UK and the US. Oh, really? Because I often meet, meet people uh, in the US, especially people who are in those kinds of interpersonal disciplines, um, who, when you ask them what they do, will have... Uh, a kind of real encapsulated sentence yeah that they say um and it it comes across as something that's rehearsed and to british sensibilities that's not a good thing so how do you respond to it in, in so in your british manner in my british manner <laughs> <laughs> it probably takes quite a lot longer um, so I would say something along the lines. So I expect it to be a, a, a conversation, a dialogue. Okay. Um, so it goes something along the lines of, well, I'm a coach in diversity and inclusion. They say, oh, what's that? Yes. Um, and depending on what I know about them, I will say something about, you know, coaching 
is uh, is a process where people work through and uh, whatever's whatever you want to achieve, um, what barriers there might be to you achieving that, and the clients that I like working with are, for example, people who are who are experiencing uh, discrimination, people who want to shine as uh, champions of diversity. Elevator pitch, which we practice diligently no matter what business we're in, to be able to give back a 30-second description of what we do is offensive to the British. I'm not sure it's offensive. Uh, <laughs> but is no, not, I don't think but it's offensive. Is, but is um, not good form. I don't really know if it's that even. I think if this if this was a coaching conversation, I would be having one of those realizations where actually this is just another one of those uh, cultural discoveries that um, I'm being resistant to, but shouldn't. So uh, when you when you go to China, you give someone your business card, you give it to them with two hands, yes, um, and they then study it very carefully and respectfully. Uh, before they put it away. That's just something you learn to do about doing business in China. So to do business in the U.S., I need an elevator pitch. <laughs> and I shouldn't be sniffy about it or say, oh, that wouldn't work in the U.K. I'm not in the U.K., so I will develop one. Well, it's too bad we're sitting here across each other from a table because I'd love to go stand very close. <laughs> See if we could push this into a totally Indeed. uncomfortable yeah. zone here. But... Uh, what other challenges? Uh, I, I'm curious about talking as not so much as somebody coming to the U.S., mm -hmm. but, but just as a new coach. You know, wh what are the things that you're struggling with as a as a coach starting up a practice? Uh, I think one of the th one of one of the main things is that the kind of mismatch between what coaching really is and what what clients understand it to be yeah um because it's a relatively new profession we all know what plumbers are supposed to do we don't know what coaches are supposed to do we kind of know the qualifications we want from our plumbers um but there's a kind of expectation there's a there's a confusion between coaches and consultants so i think one of the challenges is to uh present your expertise in a particular area in a way that will make clients confident that you're the person that they want even though as a coach you don't really need the expertise in the subject matter which makes perfect sense to me you know it, it is a challenge put, to win. it's a challenge yeah. to do but if, if you put it in another way mm -hmm. if you're hiring me as a coach it is probably important for you to be comfortable and me to be comfortable that we have a common language that yep. we both speak english at this mm -hmm. point i have no other language if you can't talk english we're not going to do it in mandarin chinese okay yeah that's no different than the common language of if you're a business person hiring mm -hmm. me as a coach the expectation is i have a certain amount of business familiarity yeah just so that we know we can go forward the same thing with the language. Now, you're mm -hmm. not hiring me to teach you a language, but it is a basic essential to us coaching. Yeah. So when you come back on the show a year from now, 
Mm-hmm. What's going to be different for you, Dave? I will be able to tell you how I've built a business having having <laughs> arrived um, in a new culture. And it's also a new career stage. So I think yeah. one of the other things that, that's kind of different and is more challenging than I expected is having moved around the world for an organization, you arrive and certain things are set up for you. Um, you have go-to people that will do things for you. Um, and so I think I'd underestimated how mu- how long things would take to kind of to get familiar with things, um, to know how to how to get stuff done, um, to understand things like the tax law and the company law. Um, and I'm sure in a year's time I won't have understood that yet. Uh, probably in a hundred years' time neither of us will have understood all of the, the intricacies of sure. that. But um, definitely in a year's time I hope to come back and and tell you about uh, my successes. I have no doubt you'll be able to. And, and I think it has nothing to do with culture. The transition for many, many coaches, the transition of going from a corporate environment mm-hmm. where things were taken care of for yeah. you to being an entrepreneur and it's your own business mm-hmm. it is a challenge. And it has nothing to do with your coaching skills. Indeed. It's a separate business skill that sometimes gets ignored until all of a sudden it's like, now what do I do? I've got a client. Who's going to write the agreement? Uh-huh. <laughs> Where's the legal department? Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a very good point, that it's um, it's a kind of multifaceted yes. change, that it's not just going from being a manager to being a coach, but being a manager to being a coach and an entrepreneur and, an entrepreneur. and, a, and a sole business owner. Yeah. In, a, in a different country. So, yeah, because yeah. the challenge to being a business owner has nothing to do with the business you're in. Indeed. No, it has to do with selling hamburgers or yeah, anything. luxury cars. Anything. Well, Dave, this has been a real pleasure. Uh, as we're getting close to wrapping up here, is there anything you wanted to uh, talk about with the, the guests here or the audience today that we didn't get to? I'd, I'd like to go back to your language learning. Because <laughs> I think uh, one of the things I find interesting is how we deal with our own diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes we have to accept that we are a certain kind of person and make provision for that in our in our lives. But sometimes we need to challenge ourselves. And often our educational background has told us that we are not good at a particular thing. Yes. Um, and often that means that they weren't very good at teaching it to us. So I, I am firmly of the opinion that anyone who actually wants to learn a language and needs to learn a language can. If you can't hear the sounds, you may never actually get to be a mimic. Okay. Um, and you may never get to be a spy where you can pass yourself off as a person from, from that country. But it doesn't mean you can't learn to communicate or to understand what people are Great saying. coaching job. You you nailed me. You know, there <laughs> are some things that I was told as a child that I still hold as the truth today without ever having evaluated them. I was told I couldn't draw. Mm-hmm. So if you ask me to draw something, I tell you I can't draw. And I think I, I was... can't draw as well. But that's, that's one of the things I'm working on at the moment. <laughs> Great. Well, look, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. It's been and, a great uh, pleasure, Doug. How do people get a hold of you? Uh, DaveHuxtable.com. Okay. 
And that's where they'll find your website? That's where they'll find my website. And be able to sign up and learn more about what you're doing. Absolutely, yes, at DaveHuxtable.com. Well, great. Well, look, uh, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the Coaching Perspective radio show community. Thank you. Well, look, if you're listening to our podcast, I want to thank you for visiting our website, thecoachingperspective.com. While you're there, be sure to check our, 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 out our archives for other shows with great guests. And speaking of guests, we're always scheduling guests. So if you'd like to be in the show, just drop me an email, doug at thecoachingperspective.com. Or on the website, there's a place to identify that you want to be on the newsletter list or that you want to be a guest. Well, look, I hope you've enjoyed the show today. Our goal, as always, is to have discussions that provide you with new ideas and information that you can put to use immediately to identify and achieve your goals. I'll be back with you again on the 27th. We're dark next week. And be sure to note our new time, 3 p.m. Unless you're listening to the podcast in that 24-7, we're available to you. Have a great evening. You're listening to the one show that takes a look at business from a different perspective, the coaching perspective, with Master Certified Business Coach Doug Gefeller. 